Hey everybody, welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pokolsky. Today, we welcome Dawson Church to the podcast. He's one of my favorite writers over the last five years. Three books that I absolutely recommend each of you go out and get. First one, your The Genie in Your Genes. Second one, which is one of my most suggested books, uh, perhaps of all time, Mind to Matter. And, and this is the science, ultimately, of understanding how your mind can start to materialize. And he's recently wrote a book, which is going to be a topic of discussion today, called Bliss Brain, How to Create Peak States of Mental Acuity um, for Ultimately Remodeling Your Brain for Happiness. Now, he's conducted dozens and dozens of clinical trials. He's a PhD, um, and you know he's the guy ultimately substantiating how much your thoughts create manifestations in your life. Um, so he's now working at the National Institute for Integrative Health, and he's got a website called EFT Universe, which you guys should all check out and dive into because uh, he's just a wealth of information. I've heard him on many podcasts before. He's a great speaker. He's a great author. Uh, if you're going to read any books uh, over the next few weeks, I suggest Mind to Matter be the first place you start and follow that up with Bliss Brain because absolutely integral in my development and understanding how much uh, thinking really impl implicates in my life. And, you know, guys, you know, I've become the biggest advocate of both gratitude and meditation and many more facets, ultimately, of diving into optimization of mind. So Dawson joins me today to dive into it. Today's podcast is brought to you by Health, H-L-T-H, incredible new product from Dr. Benjamin Bickman. You guys have heard Dr. Bickman on the show before. He's a professor who studies the effects of insulin on human metabolism and one of the certainly most sought after guests that we've ever had on the show, one of the most highly regarded researchers in the area of metabolism. He's gone and created a product that is a food-based meal replacement. So obviously, it's sometimes hard in this busy world we live in to get to high quality food. So Dr. Bickman decided to partner with his brother and create this incredible formulation of high quality ingredients that can ultimately fuel your ketogenic lifestyle or low carb lifestyle. This guy is absolutely the real deal. He's personally formulated. He's a scientist, best-selling author, and certainly someone on the forefront of the ketogenic diet, intermittent fasting, and insulin resistance. Um, like I say, he is, he is legit. He's the real deal. He's one of the few people I actually watch on Instagram. Um, and he's created a shake because literally um, there was no other product he could recommend, and he saw a need and filled it. So you're looking at uh, 27 grams of the best quality protein, including a blend of whey, egg, and collagen, which is great. Um, and a incredible array of healthy fats to fuel your day. Things from MCT and flaxseed and cocoa and, and ghee. Um, so if you're someone who is looking to optimize your performance and your cognitive function without diving into crappy ingredients, head over to Get Health. And health is spelled H-L-T-H. So no vowels. GetHealth.com and use the code MUSCLE10 for an extra 10% off your order. I've tried this. Product tastes amazing. And I highly suggest you guys check it out. Enjoy the podcast with Dawson Church. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. We're sitting here with Dawson Church. Dawson, thank you so much for your time and being here. Ben, if we have half as much excitement in the podcast as we had before the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, we'll yes, well. absolutely. So we've had some technical difficulties and some great connections. So it's absolutely a pleasure. And as I said, I've been a fan and a student of yours for a long time. And uh, the reason it's been interesting to me, I guess, to give context for the listener is the simple reality that uh, during my career, and I know during many professional athletic uh, 
careers, many professional athletes experience um, ultimately emotional issues, ultimately anxiety, fear, discontent, and this whole slew of negative emotions. And, um, you know, even though outwardly we have this expression of I'm really succeeding, I'm really thriving, I'm so happy, I'm so confident. Internally, it's this struggle and this battle. And we've, you know, we've mentioned some names and uh, whether or not we choose to use those is you know, up to you. And uh, I think it's so important that everyone realizes that everyone at all levels struggles, regardless of perceived success or perceived ascension of the proverbial external mountains. And you're the person who seems to be really uh, stepping up in the space of helping people in these athletic spaces uh, heal the trauma, I guess, to use your term. Yeah. And there is a lot of it as well. One of the things I talk about, I've written two books on psychological trauma. Mm -hmm. And one of the one of the figures from various U.S. government surveys is that one in three girls has been sexually molested, one in five boys. So if you are in a circle of athletes and there are 10 people in that circle, the chances are that there are three people there who are survivors of sexual abuse. Wow. So um, abuse is widespread. Over half of teenagers in any given year will witness or experience community violence. I mean, there's just a lot of it out there. Uh, women are more likely to, um, to be victims of domestic violence than to get breast cancer. So there are all these, these numbers out there, and, and, and psychological trauma is, wide, is, is widespread. We talked earlier about my niece, Jessica Howard, and um, how she was four times in a row, she became the US national champion at rhythmic gymnastics. And so I'd watch her in her performances, and there she was doing brilliantly, winning the gold medal, smiling, remarkable dance performances, looking so joyful, and yet she writes in, in her book, EFT for Sports Performance, how internally she was crumbling. Eventually it led to just massive personal loss, tragedy, addiction, all kinds of things. So there's that difference between the, the external persona we have, where we often look that smiling, uh, competent person to the outside world, and yet internally there is no congruence between that, that external, that external uh, face and the internal experience. And the thing for athletes is to realize how vital it is to work on those internal states as well. Do you feel that um, maybe that internal pain is one of the key driving factors to the success of these athletes? Is it their, is their outlet? <clears throat> it's a great way to distract yourself, Ben. <laughs> yeah, it really is. I was there. I was there. Yeah. Six hours a day in the gym every day. Never missed it. It's a really, really good way to help sleep. You know, if you have a problem with sleep, work more. Absolutely. You know, and that yeah. gives you a way of channeling that. Now, this whole field I write about is the, the name of the field is energy psychology. Mm -hmm. And so the focus is on not just psychology, not just physiology, but also on energy. And I've written this, this book, Mind to Matter, about the difference between consciousness and then material manifestation. And so if we get really focused on material stuff, we can we can forget or not pay attention to consciousness. What I show in the book though, is that consciousness is our huge leverage point over material manifestation. And I talk about the five main life areas, about money, about love relationships, about career, about spirituality, about health, and how each of those has improved dramatically and the leverage point is, is awareness, is consciousness. And I just give people hundreds of examples throughout the book and other books of individuals who did this, as well as literally over a thousand studies showing that when you shift your awareness, your consciousness, all kinds of things happen physiologically in your body and psychologically. So this is the huge overlooked leverage point in performance. 
I'm a huge fan of that book. I've read it twice. I'd love to come back to that. But staying on this this um, dealing with trauma situation, I think we just kind of said something that, that could open up a bag of worms for some listeners. So we said that maybe these high-level athletes are intentionally using and harnessing this, this trauma to fuel performance. So I don't want to just leave that hanging there because I think it's vital that we have a discussion around uh, maybe some alternative methods. Um, so you know, regardless what caused this trauma to be there, everyone's going to have their own journey and their own path. A lot of people have anxiety and fear and depression, all these things. And oftentimes training and in that angry state anchors that even deeper because that becomes, you know, part of, of the driving force. So I'd love for you to just kind of maybe walk us through some uh, means or mechanisms or, or approaches to uh, starting to maybe shift out of that. Like, so if I'm a high level athlete, let's say I'm, I'm your niece, Jessica, and I have a three-time national champ. I haven't yet won my fourth. And someone like yourself comes to me and says, Jessica, I'd love to help you um, stop this. Jessica's going to have a really hard time saying yes, because this is what got me there. So I, I battled with this in my career. And I'd love to have some advice on like, and I give advice on it now to my athletes, but I'd love to have someone at your level go, hey, this is how you can transfer out and still have the motivation and drive to thrive. And both things are not only possible, the more possible. And Jessica's trainer, who I know I won't go into detail about this, but um, <clears throat> it was very, very much the top-down approach. It was, it was the, uh, you do this, you do a certain number of reps, you achieve these standards. And um, it was kind of a fear-based, top-down kind of approach to training and performance. And what we're finding as we look at the research is that that kind of approach is actually much less effective than the inner-directed approach, the, the kind of approach that encourages people to develop themselves as, as full human beings, that encourages them to express their gifts, that looks for the source of motivation within rather than a top-down approach. A famous <clears throat> figure in 20th century psychology was Fritz Perls. He developed Gestalt therapy, and he called that the top-dog, underdog approach. And he says that, that in, in that in this in this struggle, you have the top dog barking orders at underdog, and top dog says, "You got to train more. You got to train harder. You got to improve yourself. You got to fix that." And he says that kind of coercive battle in the psyche is really corrosive. It keeps energy trapped in that kind of pattern. And what you then see too in the brain is that when we pass a signal. When I first wrote about this in my book, The Genie in Your Genes, people were just completely stunned when I really publicized this research. When you pass a signal through a neural bundle over and over and over again, so you've got maybe uh, there's a part of your, your hippocampus and the emotional midbrain called the dentate gyrus, and that dentate gyrus is a, is a group of cells that's responsible for regulating emotion throughout the brain. And if you pass a signal through those neurons over and over and over again, in certain neural circuits, the number of synaptic connections in that bundle doubles in one hour. Now, it's worth taking a big, deep breath and thinking about that fact. The number of synaptic connections doubles in an hour of repeat signaling in a neural bundle, which means that you're building up those neurons in your brain over and over and over again. And if those are the neurons of anger and the neurons of, uh, of, of top dog coercive training and the neurons of force and the neurons of really pushing yourself, then you are 
you, 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 may, you may get some, some effects from that and some results from that. But again, after 10, 20 years of doing that and doubling those neural bundles every few hours, you are going to have a much lower quality of life. And in fact, that's what leads people at the top of these professions often to, to commit suicide, to have addiction problems. Often their relationship skills are a mess. I remember the very first billionaire I met. So I met this guy who was a billionaire with a B. And uh, I was really excited to go see him. He lived in Pacific Palisades in California with a beautiful house overlooking the ocean. And my wife and I drove over the crest of the hill, drove to this enormous mansion. And there was the guy screaming at his teenage son and kicking his dog. <laughs> see you later. That, that seems to be common, doesn't it? So your quality of life can be terrible. Yeah, so I, I often coach and mentor a lot of extremely successful, wealthy entrepreneurs and executives, and, and you find that a lot. Like they say to me, like B, I would train, I would trade anything in the world to have your life, and, and I'll, you know, I'll give you all this money. I want to have that amount of energy and happiness and joy and enthusiasm and passion. But they have all the money in the world, so our brain goes, "Hey, I want to have that hundred million or or a billion dollars." But they would, in a minute, trade it because they're like, I'm just not happy. And I try to express that to all people that, you know, this is part of the message. Now, what I'm, I'm talking about in a book I have coming out soon called This Brain is the, the physical effects of doing this and then the kind of changes that happen in your external world. One study I talk about in This Brain was done by the consulting company McKinsey. And they did a 10-year study of high performers, high achievers, people already at the top of their, their profession. And they found that when they induce the kinds of flow states we achieve in meditation, when they're in those states, they're not just feeling better. So usually we think about meditation, about inner peace, about finding that joy as being its own reward. It's very rewarding to feel that way. I, I woke up this morning, my wife and I immediately, addictively meditated. And in this bit, I talk about neurochemicals like dopamine and serotonin and anandamide and oxytocin, beta endorphin, you get a huge rush of these neurochemicals. So you feel really good. But the McKinsey study showed that people in that feel-good state aren't just feeling good for that half hour or hour of meditation. What's happening is that as their brain function changes, and brain function changes dramatically, I have all kinds of EEG and MRI studies and images in this brain. And I've just done a, a, a really one of the largest scale MRI studies ever of meditation. And um, we're finding huge, huge shifts in their patterns of brain activity. And so when they then finish meditation, they've achieved the state we call in, in mind to matter, it's called the state of the, the awakened mind. There's this awakened mind pattern. We can read that on an EEG or on an MRI. So they then move into their day. And again, I'll say this slowly because I know I talk too fast most of the time, Ben, but uh, I, I like to slow down when there's, when there's, when there's a, a number that's really worth paying attention to. So McKinsey studied these peak formers for 10 years, entering flow states, and they studied their degree of productivity when they were in and out of them. And so how productive are they? If you're a client uh, if you're if you're looking for clients, how many clients are you acquiring? If you're a money manager, what is your uh, the result in your portfolio? So they had all these metrics for measuring productivity, and just get this this number. Then they found that people in those flow states were five times as productive, a five hundred percent increase in productivity 
as a result of entering those flow states. So you aren't just feeling good in meditation. It's not like you just feel, you know, you feel better because you have a lot of anandamide and oxytocin and serotonin in your brain. You have the awakened mind brainwave pattern. That awakened mind brainwave pattern means you wake up. Like there's one problem that has been eluding my team. We just have to do kind of a technical thing inside our business, but it involves thousands of people. And um, we've been kind of just debating it for probably about a year. We haven't been able to find a solution. We've just been kind of stuck around this thing. We've looked at various ways of doing it. Uh, can we automate this to what degree? So just a, a problem we have internally, in, but in a key part of our business and that our smartest people haven't been able to solve. This morning, just today, I woke up, boom, I had the solution. I, I finished my meditation, I went into the office, and I wrote two key emails to my team, problem solved. It didn't come through thinking about it, it didn't come through study, it didn't come through uh, research, it came purely intuitively. And that's the difference that what McKinsey found with those, those, those top executives, those high performers, they had five times the productivity that they had in other than flow states. So I definitely want to get to Bliss Brand, definitely want to get to Mind and Matter, but I want to get, start with that gene in your genes, because uh, speaking of, uh, you know, you mentioned hundreds of genes that get activated epigenetically with thoughts and ultimately meditation. So I love, like that to me is, is, is going to just hit home with my listeners because they're going to go, hey, you know, I don't want to meditate. I don't have the time to meditate. My statement is always, if you can't, you must. Um, and so if, if there's someone out there saying, I can't meditate, well, here's you know, hundreds of genes that are getting activated. I'd love to have you just kind of go down the path of what you talk about in the book, Genie and Your Genes. You, you, uh, ben, you don't have the time not to meditate. <clears throat> that five-fold increase of productivity, you don't have the time not to meditate. Right. It's out of the yeah. question not to meditate. <laughs> you yeah, gotta... We'll definitely pick your brain on how you, yeah. exactly you're yeah. meditating now, because I'd love to hear about that. But we'll yeah, yeah, save yeah. that for later. So, so, so the epigenetic effects, so the Genie and Your Genes, my, my big kind of flash of insight, around, I was working with, with a, a, a scientist called Bruce Lipton on his book called The Biology of Belief. Yeah. And we were working on this book and then got the book out there, got the book published, did very well. But I realized that um, there was another step beyond where we'd gone in the biology of belief. And that was the epigenetics of consciousness. How consciousness change affects gene expression. Now, we couldn't study that easily in 2002, 2003, 2004. The tools just weren't there yet. But then they were in 2007, 2009, 2015. So we, we've gone a long way. What I could study back then was cortisol. So I wound up, because again, cortisol is the result of the synthesis of, of various uh, proteins and genes in your body. Mm -hmm. And so um, I did this large-scale randomized controlled trial, triple-blind trial published in the, in the oldest psychiatry journal in the US. So prestigious journal published this trial, took three groups of people. One of them did EFT, acupressure tapping, which we'll talk about later on. One of them did conventional talk therapy. One rested in the clinic. So there were five clinics involved in this multi-site study. One group did EFT, one group did talk therapy for an hour, just one hour, one hour session. The other rested for an hour. We found, uh, that the group that, that used the energy therapy to shift their consciousness, that group's level of anxiety and depression dropped twice as much as the talk therapy group and their cortisol plummeted. So in just one hour, the cortisol dropped way down, much more than the other two groups. I then said to myself, if cortisol is dropping that much, then the genes that code for cortisol have to be 
being changed. In other words, our body needs genes to give its, its cells the blueprint to make these big complex molecules like cortisol. And so we know that if the level of the molecule is changing in our bloodstream, then the gene expression must be changing. So I argued that in my book, Gene in Your Genes. So it was the first book to say that, sure, we can change gene expression by, with things like diet, but we can also change gene expression with things like consciousness, awareness, our degree of, of energy practices, meditation. And so that book argued that. We didn't have any direct evidence when the book was first published in, 20, in 2005. By 2013, when the second edition came out, uh, we had lots of research on this. And so there were lots of studies then. And in one of them, I'll just mention one study, again, with an hour of EFT, so a one-hour session of using this, this energy-based technique, EFT, which is based on acupuncture, to shift your consciousness, shift your, your anxiety, shift your depression, found that one hour of EFT changed the expression of 72 genes. In other words, between the, the, the control and the experimental group, 72 genes were turned on, were upregulated by just one hour of EFT. So um, the, the effects we're producing in our bodies for these energy therapies are substantial. And I'll just mention what a few of those 72 genes do. If I try to cover all 72, we'd be here for 72 hours, but I'll just mention a few of these things. So just think, think about the impact of <clears throat> these gene changes in your body and your brain. The genes that code for cell metabolism, how well your cell metabolism is going. Genes that code for mitochondrial repair, repairing your and optimizing your cell mitochondria. Genes that code in your memory and learning centers, in your hippocampus and your brain for repairing the, the, um, the, the, the sheets around the axon sheets around those neurons to conduct signaling better. Genes that code for the suppression of esophageal tumors, that code for the suppression of colon cancer, that code for the suppression of prostate and breast cancer. All these genes upregulated by one hour of an energy therapy. I mean, there are massive shifts happening in your body biologically when you shift your consciousness. I totally believe it. Now, did you quantify that by actually doing epigenetic testing, which is now yeah. available, or was that just looking at the, the effects of suppressed cortisol? No, that was the cortisol study was the very first one that led to the design of a gene study. We've also done a lot of work with, with veterans because when we first began to get results from EFT in like 2004, 2007, 2008, we talked to the Veterans Administration about getting this to veterans, and, and they didn't want to talk to us. They were, we, we were knocking at their door. So I was in Washington, D.C., making trips there. Uh, I testified before congressional committees on a couple of occasions. I was I had various congressmen right to the VA. <clears throat> the VA was like, we got one letter back from the head of the VA, and my my one of my team members you know, was reading this long letter back from him to us about his response, and, and uh, she said, this is a really long letter. What does it mean? I said, the summary is, these therapies will not get to veterans in my lifetime. There's no way we're going to get this to veterans. So that's what it's saying, really, total, total blockage there. So we began to work around the VA, and we formed a private uh, uh, nonprofit called the Veterans Stress Project, began to then work with veterans uh, going around the VA to work with them directly. And as of today, we've worked with over 21,000 veterans free of charge and seen them, their PTSD symptoms go away 
big, big, big improvements, big, big changes. So um, we were doing cortisol studies initially. Then we, we said, okay, let's look at gene expression. In one, one, uh, one controlled trial, again, the gold standard of research, randomized controlled trial, we found that genes that related in veterans to um, inflammation and immunity changed. Their levels of inflammation went down, their levels of immunity went up, and that was when they got 10 one-hour EFT sessions. These are veterans with severe PTSD, high, very, very high levels of flashbacks, right. nightmares, intrusive thoughts, hypervigilance, all of those things. So yeah, we now have direct genetic tests like that. Some of them are blood tests, others are saliva tests, showing that gene expression changes when you're consciousness and your energy changes. So you're not the creator of EFT, you're an educator, right? You're, you're probably the person who, who um, made it famous and made it popular. Yeah, the, the, the creator was a, a pretty gifted clinical psychologist called Roger Callahan. Mm -hmm. And in the 1980s, he was also studying with other uh, doctors before then. But he already publicized it with a book in 1985 called The Five-Minute Phobia Cure. And then uh, many people have picked it up and worked with it since then. What I've done is I've really standardized the method and then got over, over the last 20 years, we've had research teams do over 100 clinical trials to validate it. So that, that's been my role. So curiously, have you ever done transcendental meditation? Yeah. You're familiar with what it is? Yes. So it's, I mean, I don't know enough about EFT, but the first thing that comes to mind is, um, you know, if you're doing, and I'd love for you to describe what EFT is, but if you're doing this tapping, is it, is it a similar thing to what uh, TM is doing ultimately with, with this mantra-based meditation where you're kind of occupying the, the, the conscious thought as your body maybe is afforded the opportunity to go into the unconscious relaxed state, or is it something completely different from a brain perspective? Yeah, something totally different. It is using acupressure. So with kneeling, we use acupuncture points mm -hmm. and, 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 and we use needles in them. Acupressure is simply either holding a point like this. This is a point, for example, series of points along here. Yeah. Pressure on there, that's acupressure rather than acupuncture. Right. The point is, is over here, and you can get, use pressure over there. And so that those are all acupressure points. Yep, uses acupressure. And what we find in MRI and EEG studies is that it literally shifts the way the brain is paying attention. So, for example, in one study of women who were, were morbidly obese, these women who were seriously overweight, and we put them in an MRI scanner, and my, my colleague who did the study found that their emotional brain was highly aroused when they saw images of food. So they were lying in the MRI scanner, and then they were flashing images of you know, chocolate cake and ice cream and pasta and all these things. And, and the women reacted with an immense craving response, you know, just a big spike in the, in, the, in, the, in the dopamine centers, in the emotional centers of the, of the brain. So they were highly aroused emotionally by these images of food. After using EFT for a few weeks, they were put back in the scanner, no response whatsoever. In fact, the, uh, the, the, the scientist, the neuroscientist running the scanning department said when, when he was looking at the scans of the, of the group after EFT, he was saying, what have you done to these women? How, how, what's going on here? There, there's no response at all. And they were so responsive to this food just a few weeks back. So what EFT does is, is this pressure on acupuncture points regulates the energy meridians. And we can measure this again in EEGs, MRIs. And so you still remember the bad thing. Like one, um, one 
one soldier I worked with after Iraq, he was in the Battle of Fallujah in 2004, and um, terrible memories. I'm going to describe here because I would trigger off people listening. They're, they're, I mean, like to do with the body parts of a friend of his and trying to get them ready to send back to uh, the remains back to the U.S. and you know, cleaning a helmet full of gore. I mean, it's just horrible stuff. And so before EFT, he had all these memories like that, and he was highly emotionally aroused when he was asked to describe how triggered he was on a scale of zero through 10, with 10 being high emotion, zero being no emotion, he was 10 out of 10. After just one EFT session with him, his degree of triggering dropped out to a zero. And this isn't just one guy, one time. This is over 20,000 people we've treated over the last 12 years and seven randomized controlled trials. So very reliably, this is shifting our level of emotional response to trauma as using these energy flows in the body in the form of acupuncture. Now, what you're saying about TM, mindfulness also plays a role. And so you can use various things. You can use heart math, heart rate variability, like the quick coherence technique from heart math. You can use neurofeedback or biofeedback uh, techniques. And in the meditation I teach in my book, Mind to Matter, I have you combine the seven best evidence-based techniques, including mindfulness and EFT in one package. And that's we're now researching, and that has just amazingly good effects. Fantastic. So for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with uh, energy meridians, um, I think when people hear that, their <clears throat> preconceived uh, beliefs are, okay, That's we're getting into the woo space. But I think you're someone who can quantify, obviously, it sounds like this is the reality and maybe something, you know, dating, dating back to Chinese medicine with acupuncture. So I'd love to have you talk about, uh, if you can, how we've actually substantiated that these things exist. Yeah, so you can measure acupuncture points very easily with a little device called a galvanometer. And they have only one two thousandth the degree of electrical resistance of the surrounding skin. So what I do sometimes is I'll just hold up a power cord and um, you know, we, you've got the, the power cord, you've got the insulator on the outside, you've got the conductor on the inside, the, the wire on the inside is the conductor, this is the insulator, and our skin has a certain degree of resistance which makes it a fairly good insulator, but at the center of an acupuncture point, it's highly conductive. And so um, these points were mapped in China 2,000 years ago. We have evidence that they were mapped in Europe over 5,000 years ago. In my book, Gene in Your Genes, I show the evidence for them being known all over the world, actually, in many, many different cultures, many different tribal cultures, shamanic cultures, just going back millennia. So um, they these were mapped, but we have like Chinese manuscripts, parchments from 2000 years ago showing where those points are. But here's the cool thing, Ben. Um, when I take my 2000, 2020 galvanometer, state-of-the-art piece of equipment, and run it over people's skin, it picks up the acupuncture points. They're very easy to, to, to measure. And this particular galvanometer has a little light that blinks and emits a little sound. It's just, just measuring the resistance on your skin. You can very easily find the acupuncture points. And they wow. turn out to be in exactly the place they were drawn on those 2,000-year-old Chinese parchments. And I think that it's, it's remarkable that, you know, back then we didn't have surgery, we didn't have drugs, we didn't have all of the medical devices we're so blessed to have today. 
but we had energy. And these ancient energy healers knew that they had this, this path to healing. And if they could stimulate energy and they, if they could regulate energy, that people would feel better. And so we have over 5,000 stories on our website of people who write in. They write into us every week saying, I had continuous migraine headaches. I used EFT and my migraines went away. I had we're working right now with a group of cancer survivors who've used EFT on their cancer symptoms. We have one woman who just had published a book called Healing Can Be Easy. Her name is Beth Meisner. And she phoned me in a panic in March of 20, uh, 2017. So I just got a, a had a diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer. They found a five centimeter, two inch uh, diameter lump in my right breast all the lymph nodes under my right armpit are, are full of cancer cells. It's metastasized beyond my breast. They found three spots of inflammation on my right lung. And so she, you know, Beth was, she got this just really about the worst diagnosis you can imagine. And she decided not to do chemotherapy or radiation. She, instead, she did Qigong. She got, she changed her energy. She said, what can I do to change my consciousness, change my energy? So she cleaned up her diet. She went and did hyperbaric oxygen. She got a course of Laetrile in Mexico. She began to do Qigong. We did EFT with her. She got energy healing. So she got this diagnosis in, oh, she also did, did things like turning off the alerts on her cell phone, quitting all the activities she was doing that were stressful, cutting stressful people out of her life. If someone was get, causing her stress, they were gone. She went back to the, the clinic, this big clinic called MD Anderson Cancer Clinic, went back there in two months in May of 2017, eight weeks later, and the tumor had shrunk from five centimeters to 1.4 centimeters, and all the lymph nodes under her right armpit were clear. She kept on with her program. Later on, she had what's called a blood biopsy, totally clear of cancer. I actually happened to email Beth this, this week again, totally free of cancer, metastasized breast cancer using primarily energy interventions. So energy is powerful and underrated. And if, 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 if you're just doing stuff on the outside level, if you're just trying to change your matter without changing your energy, you're missing the biggest possible piece of the puzzle. Yeah, I get it. And I see it. And it's one of these intangibles. And, and if it's something that's outside of your five senses, most people just I can't see it. I can't feel it. I don't believe it. And I think that's maybe where your uh, work is coming in so handy with all of us. And it's so useful because it's starting to quantify this stuff. It's, it's allowing us to go, hey, this is what's actually happening. If we can test it with a, with a galvanometer or whatever it's called, um, that, that sounds like something that my audience would be like, okay, I'm into this, right? Because, you know, I always say that I'm an open-minded skeptic. I, I try to be open-minded to everything, but I'm also like, eh. Let's let's actually see where the where the gold lies here. And yes. it sounds like for many years you've been substantiating it, and then you moved into uh, writing Mind to Matter. And I'll say that's a book I recommend all the time uh, to nearly everyone because it's one of these books where you start to substantiate, and you've got thousands of studies, as you say, substantiating how your thoughts ultimately create manifestations in your life and in your body. I'd love to have you lead us down that path. Yeah, and I give lots of examples. There's lots of research in Mind to Matter, and I. Summarized about 400 studies in the book, but there are hundreds of others I don't summarize in the book. And what they show is that when you achieve that awakened mind pattern, so you meditate effectively, and, and again, I want to stress effective meditation, not just meditation, blanket meditation, because when you close your eyes to meditate, if you're just filling your, if your mind fills up with regular thoughts, you aren't really meditating. You have to meditate effectively. You have to learn techniques that will really shift you into that awakened mind state. But when you do, 
here are some just a few of the, the effects we find is that you generate a high amount of alpha waves and a much lower amount of beta waves. Beta waves are the waves of the thinking brain, the conscious uh, active brain, and those, those waves shrink a lot if you look at an EEG readout, and alpha waves expand. Also then, the two slowest waves, which are the primary waves we have during sleep, which are theta and delta, those waves expand a lot. Then once our delta balloons out, then our gamma, which is our highest frequency wave, gets bigger as well. So, so, so our beta shrinks, alpha grows, theta and delta expand, and that triggers gamma. When that happens, those waves, those frequencies, when I, when I began looking at, at these, the effects of these frequencies, I was absolutely astonished. And so in Mind to Matter, I have a whole chapter on this. I say, what does theta, the theta frequency, do to our cells? Theta is between four cycles per second and eight cycles per second. And that's just how many times a second those neurons are firing. They're just firing four times or eight times a second. That's the theta range. Zero to four is delta. What's happening when our cells are exposed to delta? And then, the, I, you know, I, I, a lot of my books, I mean, Mind to Matter, it's pretty much written in a state of jaw-dropping amazement. I mean, I'm just, I'm just absolutely completely amazed by the effects these are having these frequencies have on our cells. So theta, for example, promotes, it signals our cells to, it signals bone cells and nerve cells to repair themselves. It triggers the um, repair of nerve and bone cells. Delta does things like shifting our expression of genes that uh, upregulate various scavenging um, cycles in our bodies. So, so the the kinds of processes that scavenge, like broken pieces of protein, those 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 get upregulated in in delta. So we're literally triggering healthful processes when we have high amounts of theta and delta. But gamma, in one MIT study I talk about in Mind to Matter, again, this is just this this not numerically. This is a staggering number. So in Alzheimer's, what happens in Alzheimer's patients is that there's a buildup in their brains of these things called beta amyloid plaques. We've all heard of beta amyloid plaques. We know they're, they're bad. And if you look, I have, a, I have a picture in mind to matter of what they look like in the brain. And you see bundles of neurons, and they're clear or light blue in this image in mind to matter. And then the beta amyloid plaques, they look like tar. They look like asphalt. And they're asphalt that's sticking to the neurons, and the neurons can't fire. And that's what happens to Alzheimer's patients. Very sadly, they start to deteriorate in with their memory. They start to deteriorate in their physical functions. And it's a one-way street. Alzheimer's gets worse and worse and worse, especially it kills people. So it's, it's, a, you know, it's, it's just a, a horrible pro problem for people is the buildup of these beta amyloid plaques which inhibit neural signaling. So in one study of gamma, they took mice and they passed gamma frequencies through their brains for one hour. And in one hour, the brains of those mice changed their function and they dissolved 50% of the beta amyloid plaques in their brains in one hour of gamma stimulation. That's their external <laughs> stimulation, not even an internally done one. 
externally, yeah, they were using yeah. light, and then in replication, they used light and sound, both of that gamma. Gamma is 40 cycles per second, going up to hundreds of cycles per second. And that's, that's what we used. And there are now devices in clinical trials for human beings, again, to use gamma. But you, you generate lots of gamma, huge amounts of gamma, Meditators, in one of the meditators that I'm talking about in my new book, Bliss Brain, they, he's generating 25 times the gamma of normal human beings, and his brain is 10 years younger biologically than his chronological age. I talk a lot in my books about chronological age versus biological age. So biologically, you're 35 years old, 22 years old, 49 years old, 70, so, so, so chronologically, you tell me your age. Biologically, how old are you? And in twin studies of identical twins, sometimes the one who's unhealthier, who's depressed, who's negative, they can have far more beta amyloid plaques and they can die 10 years before the one who's positive, even though genetically they're the same. So our thinking, our consciousness is having a radical effect on our physical health, including things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and, and other kinds of degenerative diseases. Yeah, I think Mind of Matter is one of the greatest um, advocates for all types of consciousness and mindfulness practices. It's just this, uh, the more you can become present, the more you can bring joy into your life, the more you can start to manifest people and things and, and circumstances that support uh, your mission, ultimately, whatever brings you joy. And it's just such a beautiful thing. And I love that book, as I said, I read it twice. And it seemed like that's almost the perfect then transition into you identifying all these what we'll call peak states of gamma, what seems like it was kind of the uh, precipice for doing uh, Bliss Brain, the, the newest book coming out September 15th. Yeah, I, I, I wrote Bliss Brain because, um, Ben, I, I struggled my whole life with depression, anxiety, PTSD. I had a, a lot of rough things happen in my childhood and wound up really, really miserable. And in fact, I tell the story in Bliss Brain about how when I was 15 years old, I was a teenager, um, I had had a lot of pretty difficult experiences. And um, I, I remembered one day when I was 15 years old, I, I was with a group of, of people, family members in a, a hotel. And the hotel had a full length mirror, which we didn't have any of those at home. And so I walked past this full length mirror and I stopped and just stared at myself. But I was 15 years old. I had long, curly, brown hair. I was dressed like a hippie. I had like, like a, a book bag over my shoulder and uh, bell-bottom trousers on. And, and so I, I stared at this, at this this apparition in front of me in, in, the, in the mirror, and I, I looked at the eyes of this human being, and I said to myself mentally, my mental self-talk was, that's the saddest face I've ever seen in my life. Wow. It was me. And I realized, I realized I had to change. I went to live on an ashram that same year, a spiritual community. I got into psychology. I got into spirituality. I tried to shift myself. And bit by bit, decade by decade, I did, I did improve. I mean, I, I made incredible progress. But I began as a really miserable person. And then I, then I found I made the commitment of meditating every day when I was 45 years old. When I made that commitment, within one year, my life changed radically for the better in every dimension. I began to use EFT, other energy therapies, and suddenly lifetime problems I'd had just went away. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was like a miracle. So I did that for a lot of years, and it was nice. But what happened over the last few years was I, I began to realize that happiness for me 
is no longer a state, it's a trait. Like people, my friends meet me, they, it's like, oh, there's Dawson, we know we'll be happy. I was meeting with my men's group this last weekend, and when they ask people to share, they say, well, Dawson's going to share. He's about to have some story of elevated emotion and inspiration to tell us, because it's just basically always there. So how did he get from being that depressed teenager to being here? So I began to, to look at myself and realize, wow, I turned happiness from a temporary state to a reliable brain trait. I built enough neural wiring. And so I was on retreat a few years back and I was like doing a, a New Year's Eve. I, every, every year I go away for two or three weeks, New Year's Eve, and I really get into deep into my life mission. And the message I got from the universe was, Dawson, I've given you the gift of being a happy person. Go give that gift to everyone else now. So I wrote Bliss Brain and I explained the mechanics of how we trigger that neural plasticity. And I asked really detailed questions like, how do you do it quickest? Which meditation techniques are the best? Now, I don't want to be setting off kind of a, a comparative thing here between meditation styles, but research shows that certain meditations, things, kinds of meditation or practices produce quicker neuroplasticity than others. Which ones do it fastest? Which ones are the window dressing? You know, I, I'm a skeptic as well. I look at the saffron robes, I look at the 108 prayer beads, and I say, is that, are those necessary? And it turns out that some of them are, and a lot of them been in every tradition, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, a lot of it is just window dressing. And I don't want to be knocking the window dressing. It's very meaningful for people to be in a tradition. And I'm in a tradition myself. I love my tradition. But in my tradition, a bunch of it is just window dressing. And I, I, I like the window dressing, but I want the science because the science shows you what's real. And the science shows you their practices. If you do these things within eight weeks, 12 minutes a day, you will literally start the process of neuroplasticity. In one of the examples in 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 my book, Mind to Matter, this um, this this uh, TV show host called Graham Phillips, in eight weeks of mindfulness, had a massive shift in his brain activity and measurable changes in neuroplasticity. Parts of his brain grew by three, four, five percent in just eight weeks. So you're producing big change, and that's going from state to trait. Now you're not just a, a happy person occasionally, you have the trait of happiness, you have the trait of resilience, you have the trait of joy. These are character traits, and nothing can take them away from you. So incredible. So I'm sure there's a lot of people out there saying, well, what is the best practice? And it, does it come back to what you, you've identified in the book as like, hey, this is the fastest way to get these states? Or do you believe there may be an individual um, best practice based on where somebody is. So, you know, some people I've seen have tremendous results from TM, some people from mindfulness, some people from other practices. Um, so I guess uh, I'm always of the mentality of wherever you are, whatever it is, it's a start. Um, what's your opinion with that? I will tell you the very best practice. Take a deep breath, stand by. Here's the best practice. The best practice is the one you will actually do. Yeah. When you will make it a commitment to like I had this this time and my life was in chaos and I was having a lot of problems in my life and I, I had a coach and I said well my coach one day and I said to her you know I, I'm overwhelmed I have one business that's really taking off one business that's really not doing well I, I'm, I'm too busy I, I have two young kids at home I'm a single dad blah 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 what do I do and she said well are you meditating and I was 45 years old and I said I don't have time to meditate I'm working you know 15 hours a day 
80 hours a week. There's no way I can have time to meditate. And when I said that, I realized then I had to meditate immediately. So the next morning, I set my alarm clock for, for 6.30 a.m. And before my kids got up to get into school, I meditated for half an hour. And I just stuck to it day after day after day after day. That was, that was it for me. In Mind Matter, I give you 30 practices to experiment with. EFT, mindfulness, grounding, time in nature, qigong, yoga. There are lots of different practices. The best one is the one you'll make that commitment to. And it is a, uh, an absolutely firm commitment to the most important person in your life, which is you. And you take that, like if you, say for example, you were coaching uh, your hero. Who's your biggest hero? And, and who, just imagine you, you, you had a contract coach, you're great, the greatest living person that you know right now. Um, and you, had a, you were going to meet them at the gym at 7 o'clock on Tuesday. So uh, you have this person that you really admire, and you're going to meet them. Let's just say Oprah. Say you're, no, say you're not Oprah's personal trainer. Oprah's pretty awesome. You're, you're, you're Oprah's personal trainer, and you have an appointment to meet Oprah in the gym at 8 a.m. on Tuesday. Will you be there for your appointment? Yeah, of course. Definitely. You show up early and you have a big smile on your face. And nothing will keep you away. So what is your commitment to yourself? You, Oprah's going to come and Oprah's going to go, but you, your body, your psyche, your children, your influence in the world, what is the, what will you absolutely commit to doing? And for me that day, it was meditation. I will commit to meditating for every morning before my kids wake up from school. So read about all 30 practices in Mind to Matter. You'll find you're drawn to some of them very naturally and some of them fit with your lifestyle. But the one that works is the one you'll commit to. Okay, so in Bliss Brand, you said you've, you've given us maybe what will determine to be the best practice for accelerating that journey. What does that look like? Or, or maybe, Matt, more accurately, what are you doing right now? So when Matt first told me your 15-minute, I believe it was a 15-minute meditation, that was a five, five, and five, at least that was he was doing. Um, it was it was incredible for me. Like I was really deep into my spiritual journey at that time. I had about an 18-month um, journey where after retiring from professional bodybuilding, I kind of went complete opposite direction and like was yoga and meditation and long nature walks every day. Just I felt like I had to like rid myself of all that negative energy. Uh, and I was doing that and I was having some incredible experiences, incredible manifestation. I don't know if that's what you're still doing or uh, what are you still doing? My personal practice is, uh, is several fold. And I, I, I feel that two essentials are meditation and EFT. EFT is a method for reducing transient stress. So when I am worried about, um, say, for example, uh, a project I, that, that's, that's not going well, or a team member who's, uh, who's struggling or something. I, I'm getting stressed about this. So that's when you use EFT. Uh, EFT will reduce and release that stress, usually in two minutes or less. So it's, it's, it's a transient wow. stress reduction technique. Meditation is your foundational technique. So you do that, and, and I, I do it every day. And again, these, these neurochemicals are highly addictive. I mentioned anandamide earlier, and the... Uh, the active ingredient in marijuana is THC. That's the molecule that docks to the synapses in your brain and produces a feeling of euphoria. And all THC is is synthetic, endogenous, exogenous rather. It is simply what your brain produces naturally in the form of anandamide. So anandamide is the natural 
endogenous molecule. THC is the artificial exogenous molecule. You can get high on either one. When you meditate, you get high on anandamide. So, so I advocate you meditate, and again, very quickly, with a flood of anandamide, a lot of dopamine, a lot of serotonin, oxytocin, beta endorphin, all of these neurochemicals, you're going to feel really, really, really good. So those are the two things I think are essential. But there are 30 practices in mind to matter. And uh, I personally, the ones I do, it's time and nature is really essential for me. My office has a beautiful view. I have a nature preserve close by. I go kayaking or paddle boarding usually once a day on a local river. And again, I've got my whole thing dialed in. I jump in my van, five minutes to the river, throw the paddleboard in, paddleboard for 30 minutes, throw the paddleboard back in the van, be back in time in an hour for my next meeting. So I've got wow. a routine go going there, uh, walks in nature. I have a nature preserve close by. I go for, for a walk or a bicycle ride there. And so for me, time in nature is really restorative. Time alone, I just got back a week and a half ago from an eight-day retreat. I usually take eight to ten days every quarter. I just go away. I went into the Jackson's called the Jackson Demonstration State Forest in Northern California. Uh, I shouldn't actually be saying that probably because it's actually illegal to go there right now because they've 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 they've, 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 they've shut down most of the access to most of those, most of these parks. But um, there there are like national parks you can go into, national forests you can go into, and just have time in deep communion with nature. For me, that is, is really restorative and, and an antidote to all the heady stuff I'm, I'm doing. Uh, being in my heart, uh, I've, I've been married for many years. Um, when I speak, speak to my wife, when I speak to you, I mean, we're excited right now. We, we love sharing this stuff. But is this an appropriate tempo with which to approach a dinner date with Christine at 6 p.m.? No, it is not. Right. <laughs> I need to drop back into my heart. I can feel myself really dropping into my heart to be with my wife. So being in my heart is a really powerful spiritual practice. I talk to my friends. Do I want to be, you know, at this tempo? I want to be at a slow tempo. When I talk to my children or grandchildren, I want to really be at a, at a, at a deep level. I want to be like when I talk to my grand granddaughters, I, I, I sit down on the ground. I look at them eye to eye. I have that, that, that human contact. So um, I find ways of bringing the ineffable into my daily life. And in, in mind to matter, I call it being with non-local mind. You commune with non-local mind and you leave your local obsession with the, the self and with who you are as a local being. You need that local being to act in the world, but you want to make sure you're giving yourself lots of time to surrender and be one with non-local mind as well. So those are the things that, that really are powerful for me. Amazing. I'm sitting here smiling because in this entire fitness industry, and I was guilty of it for a long time, probably at some level still am, uh, we spent a lot of time um, you know, punishing our body, doing a lot of things to ultimately disconnect from you know feelings. We're not very good at going inside of our body and having that interoceptive connection. Um, so telling somebody to connect with your heart is, is valuable. Last week's podcast, ironically, I was talking about um, the reason I feel that we have such a disconnected society, we have very shallow relationships, very few relationships, very superficial, is we haven't been able to connect with ourselves. So if you can't connect with yourselves and actually feel in your heart, it's impossible to connect with somebody else. So I think we're on the same page there as far as advocating like, hey, just slow down and feel and be present, see what your body's going through. And that's literally how I teach exercise, right, is instead of being mindless and just doing things uh, as fast as you can just to get them done because you quote unquote have to, like what about turning exercise into this mindful endeavor where you can connect with your body and feel and uh, appreciate your body and ultimately create this, this space of gratitude and, and personal growth. 
rather than uh, ridicule and self-punishment and self-hatred, which is very, very common. So, Totally. You know, those women we studied who were obese were so out of touch with their bodies, and they also perceived exercise as punishment. And you just got to get out of that, that pattern. When, we, when, when the pandemic hit and the gyms closed, a lot of us had to then work out at home. I mean, we had to figure out body weight workouts. I hadn't done body weight workouts for, you know, that many, many years. So and I, my, my gym routine was pretty clear. I knew what I wanted to do. Uh, but suddenly I, I was doing push-ups again, for example, which I hadn't done for a long time, just on the carpet in the living room. And so um, one of the things I did, the first, my first sets of push-ups, now I, I'm probably going to be, uh, I, I, I'm not in the league of most of your listeners. So the, the first day I tried to do body weight push-ups after the pandemic hit and the gyms closed, I could do eight. I could do eight push-ups. That was it. Um, only eight push-ups. Now, I could have pushed myself and done probably more than 10. But I knew that if I did eight and felt good, then my brain would associate push-ups with pleasure. Okay? So I did, I did eight, and I quit. Then I, I'm, up to, I'm up to about 50 now. But a couple of days ago, I did my body weight workout, and I got to 47, and, my, and I was starting to... to it was starting to move from the zone of pleasure. I'm in show. I feel so good about this. To I just gotta force myself to do the next set, and I quit. I stop right there. So again, I'm building up the association in my brain between push-ups and pleasure. Now I can't wait to do my push-ups. I can't wait to do my squats. I can't wait to do, do my crunches because I know that I'm gonna feel so good. Right. So now. I literally wired your brain to associate exercise with pleasure. And that's what that, those women who are obese didn't have. They had no sense of their body or exercise being a source of pleasure. But that, that's a wonderful hack. Exercise while it feels good. Quit the moment you start to associate it with, with punishment. Yeah, and soreness and joint pain. All yeah. those things that are associated with pushing past the brink of comfort. Ultimately, some people associate negatively. I personally, I'm like, man, if I don't feel that way, I, like I'm not happy, right? Like I want to do that now. But I mean, that's 25 years now of learning that. And that's that's kind of my happy place, right? And whereas uh, that's just, a, like you say, that's a learned trait. It's gone from a state that I intentionally created, like, hey, I'm actually learning to consciously enjoy this now to a trait. And I think that's a, that's a super powerful framing for people to start conceptualizing how to change anything. Like it starts as a, as a, as a state and it transcends into a trait. Yeah, and again, it doesn't take that long. That one study in this brain, it was, I'll say these words, whatever I slow down, you know, I'm going to give you a number, but it was eight weeks, 12 minutes a day, and already neural plasticity kicked in and was turning that state of feeling good into the trait of happiness. So it doesn't take long. So Dawson, you've written a number of best-selling books. You're a hugely successful author, coach, uh, entrepreneur, What's next in your life? What's the mission you're going to accomplish during your time on The Rock? A few different things, Ben, is um, I want to see more energy therapies in primary care. In the studies of EFT for pain, for instance, we find there's an average of a two-thirds reduction in pain using EFT in a few minutes. So why isn't this in every pain clinic? It's in a lot of pain clinics, but it should be one of our first lines of defense against uh, many of our 
illnesses, um, autoimmune conditions. Uh, EFT energy therapies are usually very effective. So um, I want to see it in primary care, and I'm doing things to try and catalyze that. And the hardest thing I did was to get those studies published. The first study took me a long time. Now studies are being published every year. Other people are doing the research is great. So um, seeing this available to people, secondly, seeing it available to people who are suffering unnecessarily. You, you can't imagine what it's like to be that veteran that of the Iraq war or the Afghanistan war or the earlier war, the first Iraq war or Korea or Vietnam and live with flashbacks and nightmares. There's a high degree of transferred PTSD. That means the, the spouses of those veterans, about a quarter of them get PTSD from their PTSD husbands so or, or wives in later generations. So, um, so I want to see that, that suffering go away. We can treat most PTSD successfully in our research. About 9 out of 10 veterans recover, and long-term follow-ups show they recover permanently. I want those available to everybody. What I'm really focused on now, though, for a book I'll be writing over the next few years is the big picture. Like right now, everyone's worried about the pandemic. They're worried about financial crash. They're worried about the economy. And those are all valid short-term concerns. But when you zoom out and you look at a century, just like, for example, lifespan, human lifespan has doubled in the last century. I am living statistically, I'm likely to live twice as long as my great-grandfather lived. So that's increased wealth. Sure, we're in the middle of a financial crash. There was a financial crash in 2008. In 2000, there was the dot-com bubble. In 1992, there was a recession. There was a financial crash in 1988. Go back to 1981. 1979, we were in a recession. You know, you, you go back. But if you zoom out and look at the graph, in the last 40 years, average global wealth, the wealth of the average global citizen, has tripled. That includes all the crashes and recessions, has tripled in the last 40 years. So in the big picture of human well-being, and by every metric, um, things are improving. Compassion is also driving human behavior in, in, in all kinds of ways. It has been for the last hundreds of years. So I'm now working on a book looking at these big picture trends, and they aren't just positive. They are utterly transformative. Because think about this, Ben. Here I am, I start meditating, you start meditating, our audience starts meditating, and we're triggering neuroplasticity in our brains, and it starts to show up in eight weeks. In eight months, in eight years, our brains are radically different inside our skulls. We are a species catalyzing changes in our own individual brain anatomy in real time in one generation. When Charles Darwin wrote The Origin of Species and when other popularizers of, of Charles Darwin were talking about it in the 1800s, Darwin wrote, there's no way, evolution is slow by random mutation, by natural selection. There's no way in one generation you can observe it happening. It takes thousands of years, millions of years often, for a new species to evolve. So evolution is slow, not anymore. Evolution, I'm literally evolving my brain by today's meditation and yesterday's. So I'm going to have a very different out health outcome. In one study, the researchers found that, again, it's an Alzheimer's study, that positive thinking was associated with 
substantial reduction in Alzheimer's plaque formation and death. In other words, people who think positively have a slower rate of Alzheimer's formation and a much longer lifestyle, life, life, lifespans. In another study, a massive 30-year study, they found that they controlled for everything, smoking, weight, diet, location, uh, socioeconomic status, they controlled for everything. What was the factor that most influenced lifespan? Optimism. So if I'm optimistic, I'm joyful, if I'm altruistic, I'm, I'm using the power of consciousness to shift my lifespan. By how much? In that study, 10 years. The wow. optimists lived 10 years. They had 10 more years of retirement to play with their grandchildren like I'm doing now. They had 10 more years to travel the world or spend time in nature or meditate or love their wives and people around them or do work that's meaningful to them, volunteer for charity, whatever they were doing. 10 more years just from being an optimist, okay? So the power of consciousness over health and longevity and our ability to evolve our brains in real time is an event unprecedented in the entire four billion year history of planet Earth. What is it going to do for our future? And I'm going to tell you, it's going to do in this century. We're, imagine now, eight billion people up-leveling their brains in this way, even a few million of them up-leveling their brains in this way, and then having that five times greater ability to tackle complex problems like overpopulation, like global warming, like the weaponization of artificial intelligence, like all of the other prob social problems we have now. Imagine these evolved brains then tackling those problems. We're going to do it. Are you familiar with Peter Diamandis' book, Abundance? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, totally. so yeah. similar vein, right, is, is making people realize, like, hey, as much as we have this mentality of scarcity and lack and fear driven into our skulls every day in, in mainstream media and social media, by far the most abundant time, by far the safest time, like so many incredible things that people just – neglect to see right it's the people who are outside in the beautiful blue sky and all they see is the one gray cloud and that's <laughs> right that's it dawson you're absolutely amazing i'm super grateful to have connected and for all the information you keep providing i look forward to connecting again in the future and if you ever have stuff you want to talk about i would absolutely love to have you back on because this is stuff that i think is incredibly useful and i appreciate it yeah, I'm trying to give kind of an overview during this, this time, but each of these threads, like PTSD, psychological trauma, what are the symptoms, how to, how to solve it in your life? That, that by itself is a really powerful topic. Uh, you know, how do we spark neuroplasticity is a powerful topic. What, what will the world look like in 25 years? That, that's that's yeah. good. So I'd love to share more. If you could share, if you have a URL that comes to mind for our audience to take a look at EFT, because we've mentioned that a lot and we haven't given them any examples. If you have one to, to suggest where they can check out a video or a YouTube video, anything you suggest? Yeah, just go to this one URL that'll get them to a whole bunch of resources. And that is just my name, Dawson, D-A-W-S-O-N, Dawson Gift, G-I-F-T, DawsonGift.com. And that'll take them to the free EFT mini manual where you just learn to tap yourself as a one page instruction sheet very, very quickly. Uh, what is also there, Ben, is a um, very top of that page with DawsonGift.com. I, I seriously want you to use the first resource there which is an eco-meditation, which is this, 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 this wonderful free meditation, which I teach. But it's focused on immunity, 
because we found that people's immune systems, we've done two clinical trials now, and they've shown that EFT and eco meditation boost immunity dramatically, quickly, immediately, in just like a couple of days. So there's a special immunity meditation there, and the, and the, the molecule that the, this, this meditation boosts is called immunoglobulin, and it's an a- antibody, and it actually um, directly neutralizes coronaviruses. So coronaviruses are neutralized by these immunity antibodies, and we've, we've shown in two clinical trials a huge increase in these with that meditation. So dorsalgift.com, we put that there now as the top link. There are like 20 different things you get there. But the top one is the immunity meditation. And I seriously want people to use that because you, you want to have a boost in your immunity and your consciousness can do wonders for achieving that. Yeah, I highly suggest everyone head over to Amazon or wherever you buy books and pick up Mind to Matter immediately. And then on September 15th, get over and buy Bliss Brain, both uh, incredible books and people should be added to the library. So thanks again, Dawson. I really appreciate being here. You know, Ben, one other thing, I want to ask a favor. Sure, yeah, no problem. I I would love to see people leaving a review of Mind to Matter on Amazon yeah. because it has almost a thousand five-star reviews right now. Once it has hits a thousand, Amazon is going to spontaneously be promoting the book itself and then a lot more people know about meditation. So I, I really want to hit that 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 1,000 five-star review status on Amazon and let get the benefits of this work to more people. So that's one, one practical thing you can do is please leave me a, a review on Amazon. Absolutely, everybody do it. Take care. Thank Take you. The book. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.